and welcome Misties to our podcast, Within the Mist, a hidden place where we tell stories and analyze the likes of cryptids, ghosts, and other mysteries for our, and hopefully your, amusement. I am your hopping down the bunny trail of a host, Gary, with my wife and co-host, Goldie Ann. Hello, Goldie Ann. Hi, Gary. Isn't it Thanksgiving? Yes, but I did not have this story ready in uh, Easter, so I did want to wait until next April to do it. Oh, this should be interesting. Well, to make it even more interesting, hey, Goldie Ann. Oh, God. What did the rabbit give to his girlfriend? I've seen Hop, and he poops jelly beans. (laughs) So I don't know. Not this time. He gives her a 14-carat ring. Oh, dear God. Okay. I'm, I'm just here to help. Okay. All right. Well, we finished up on the creation of our YouTube channel for those that prefer to get their podcast fixed that way. Hopefully, we'll be able to start adding other video content to that, such as visit to some of the locations where our episodes take place. You mean real life vid- videos? In the flesh. Wow. I mean, in fact, we have a trip that we're planning for Louisiana, so maybe we'll be able to get some shots of the different ghost tours or voodoo locations of New Orleans. Well, I do have us a nice haunted cemetery tour. All right. So then, uh, everyone, plan on having some uh, different content being added to our YouTube channel. As our podcast continues to grow... We are looking at ways to expand what we provide. We would appreciate any ideas or suggestions our listeners have. Just contact us on the various social media projects or email at withinthemistpodcast at gmail.com. Today's episode does contain violent attacks and murders. What? Some of our... Okay. Yeah. I I didn't forewarn you? No. Oh. Well, yeah, we... I'm going to talk about some violent attacks and murders that some members of our audience might find a bit unsettling. So please be forewarned. We are storytellers who have gathered information on some of our favorite mysteries to bring to you. We don't attempt to scare our listeners on purpose. Well, maybe just a little scared. Listener discretion is always advised. Okay, so my first question coming out of it is, am I still going to want a rabbit when this is done? Mm. Uh, that remains to be seen. Oh, I really couldn't answer that question at this point. You're starting to scare me. Well, if you really want to be scared, let's take a walk within the mist. At the stroke of midnight, you find yourself walking below a bridge. You thought you were alone until you see something in the distance. The darkness had made it difficult to identify, but as it comes closer, you start to distinguish that it appears to be a man dressed in a white rabbit suit. Worse, as the man comes closer, you now notice that there is an axe in his hand. Don't expect to survive as he plans to slash your throat and leave your body dangling from the bridge. Dear God. Today, we discuss the Bunny Man. Why have I never heard of this before? This is going to get you all caught up and educated. Horror. Right. Now, the legend of the Bunny Man was initiated with reports on a website called Castle of Spirits around 1999 by a Timothy C. Forbes, who had claimed to be from that region. 
It reported that the original tales of the Bunny Man didn't start until 1931, but there had already been numerous murders already connected to the case. Once it started, the internet began to fill in the details on the origin of the Bunny Man. Chapter 1 Escape from the Mental Asylum Deep within the woods of 1904 that divided the town of Clifton, Virginia from the Fairfax Station was a mental asylum not far from the bridge. It was home to approximately 300 of the very worst in murderers and maniacs. The asylum was more prison than hospital, working more to contain those deemed too insane and far too dangerous to be released into society. Guards were armed with guns and barbed wire lined the gates. Its purpose was more as a prison rather than a hospital to attempt to treat them as patients. Wild and horrible rumors of what went on inside that facility was enough to give the Clifton residents nightmares. Rumors of the tortures and experiments on the people inside frightened even the bravest of men, so much so that everyone avoided that part of the forest. They didn't like the idea of mental patients near their growing and respectable community. The townspeople organized and petitioned and eventually pressured the government to get the facility shut down. All the patients were to be taken by bus to the Lorton prison to await until they could be appropriately sentenced far from the concerns of the re residents of Clifton. The transport of the criminally insane patients was scheduled to take place in the middle of the night to avoid the attention of the town residents. It was deemed easier to sneak in the dead of night than to answer the questions from any prying eyes. The less known about the state of the people they previously held within their walls, the better. Armed guards boarded the patients who were chained together in pairs onto the buses. The buses left one at a time from the condemned mental asylum. As the very last bus was on its way to the prison, the driver swerved to avoid hitting a stray animal that darted in the headlights across the road in front of him. By reflex, the driver pulled too hard on the steering wheel and caused the bus packed with the patients to drive off the road and crash into the dark trees of the forest. When the bus failed to arrive, men were sent out from the Lorton prison to investigate the disappearance. What they found was a massive confusion as the driver and many of the guards were injured or killed in the crash. Worse yet was that many of the criminally insane convicts took this opportunity to escape. Any one of them represented a dangerous threat to the community. The Lorton prison guards immediately initiated a search and capture. Working their way through the dark and dense woodland was difficult. Fortunately, due to their being chained together and the injuries that they suffered in the accidents, the criminals were unable to travel far. All of them were reapprehended by the guards in the late night manhunt. They were able to regain control before news of the accident got out. Well, all of the convicts were captured except for two, a Douglas J. Griffin and Marcus Walster. After the crash, the two men had disappeared into the forest. 
The guards organized a search party for the two mental patients once the others were contained, but nothing could be found of them at night. They had vanished into thin air. However, the next morning, the body of Marcus Walster was found, murdered by Douglas Griffin. In some manner unexplained, Griffin had been able to separate himself from the chains that bound the pair of them together and killed Walster with his bare hands. The attack on Walster was so savage that many of the search party had to leave the scene for fear of being sick at the site. Weeks had passed and while the authorities continued to search for him, police found a trail of half-eaten gutted bunnies. They would be found hanging from tree branches in the forest, swinging back and forth in the autumn wind. The trail of mutilated corpses eventually led them to where many more of the bunnies were hanging. It was the then called Fairfax Station Bridge. Douglas was apparently eating the rabbits to stay alive and using the underpass of the bridge as a shelter. For months, the police searched for Griffin as they were now referring him as the Bunny Man. The doctors who had been treating Griffin had a theory. He had held on to a rage that was so severe and that he would have escaped hell-bent on avenging the murders of his wife and child. The two had been murdered in a gruesome fashion nearby on an Easter Sunday. Griffin had been convicted of the horrendous crime but was deemed insane and committed to the mental asylum instead of prison. His time there only saw his mental state deteriorate further. Now he was free. There were plenty of clues that Griffin was still close to the location but every effort to apprehend him failed. They doubled their efforts and still had no success. They knew that it was only a matter of time before he moved on from killing rabbits to killing innocent people. However, the days turned to weeks and the weeks into months until everyone assumed that Griffin had died from exposure in the woods. The bunny man was never found. Then, on a Halloween night in 1905, a group of teenagers were hanging around the one-lane tunnel overpass on Colchester Road. The bridge had a one-lane car road passing underneath and a dual railroad track above it along a gravel road. To the local high schools, it was known as the Bunny Man Bridge, and they were there seeking some cheap Halloween thrills and a chance to scare each other with stories of the maniac that had escaped a mental asylum and lived in the woods surviving off of eating live rabbits. As the evening got later, many of the teams left there until there was only a small handful left as midnight got closer. At the stroke of midnight, the sounds of the forest vanished. It was so completely dark out that they were unable to see from one end of the shadowy tunnel to the other. The nighttime adventure took on a sinister and eerie turn. None of them wanted to be the first to admit that they were scared. Therefore, they continued into the tunnel, completely blinded. Once they were engulfed in the shadows, they gathered in a circle and began chanting, Bunny Man! Bunny Man! 
Bunny Man. Their voices echoed off the walls of the tunnel. There was no response. That was until there was something at the other end of the tunnel. What they did see was some sort of bright light or orb. It could have been the flashlight of another person. It was enough to cause one of the teens to turn and run off down the road towards home. The next morning, the police were called when the teenagers failed to come home by their concerned parents. It did not take long for the authorities to find the missing teenagers. They had all been strung up like the bunnies. Their throats had been cut and their bodies gutted to be left hanging from the Bunny Man Bridge. The missing mental patient, Daniel Griffin, was of course assumed to be the killer. The area returned to quiet until the following year, and every year since then. As the rumor goes, if you are at Bunny Man Bridge at midnight on Halloween night, you'll end up just like those kids and those bunnies. Interesting. So why on Halloween night and not Easter Sunday? It might be because the teenagers felt this was more of a spooky story to tell on Halloween than on Easter. Right. Or it could be because Halloween is supposed to be the time when the veil between the dead and the living is the thinnest. True. So maybe this was the time that the bunny man could cross over. Yeah. I wonder if you did on just an Easter Sunday what would happen. Well, we don't have any stories of Where's him actually bridge? coming back. It's actually in, in it's just outside of Clifton, uh, Virginia. Let's go. We'll add that to the bucket <laughs> list. And, we'll go and, see. And I do have yeah, we do have more information on the Clifton Bridge uh, that I'll go over as we uh, discuss the topic. Hmm. But what do you think of the uh, story so far? Well, at first I was like, oh wow, that sounds like you know Halloween movie, like all five of them. But then. It got a little better after that. I'm like, okay, maybe not. It's a little bit different. Well, you know, the ambulance gets in the wreck and the, you know, mass killer escapes. That happened to at least three of the five. Well, maybe Halloween based their stories on the bunny man. That's also what I was thinking. Ooh. Of course, this story sounds like so many other urban legends designed to frighten you in the dark of Halloween night. But what if I told you that some of the details surrounding the story of the Bunny Man could be proven to be true? What if the story's very start of a mother and child who had been murdered and caused a man to be committed to a mental institute actually did happen in this area? Okay. Chapter 2. The Mother and Child Newspaper articles written for the Evening Star in the Washington Post during 1949 and 1950 provide historical information that makes the legend all too real. It was Thursday, February 24th of 1949. Mrs. Frances Holliber was 37 and her eight-month-old daughter, June, drove to Fairfax County to visit the Green Forest Nudist Colony Lodge in that area that would later be resting for the weekend. They were in the company of Frances' estranged husband, Charles, who was, who was a member of the nudist colony. Oh, this is interesting. Sorry. Yes, it was a different time back then. Now, Charles was June's father and Frances' husband, although the two of them never shared a home. In fact, the couple's relationship had deteriorated to the point that the pair was all but divorced by the time. 
Frances was pregnant with her second child, and the two may have planned this trip to determine if there was any hopes of saving their marriage. Upon leaving the lodge, the car became mired in some mud. The couple quarreled and fought, and Mrs. Holliber took her daughter in her arms and walked away from her husband, back down along the road towards the lodge. She was never seen and never returned again. Charles Holliber had spent the night in the car and got a ride back to Washington the next day. Once home, he returned with his brother-in-law and a friend to retrieve the car from the mud. Still finding no evidence of his family, the police were finally notified. There was an intensive search of the area that was organized involving the Fairfax County Police, Washington detectives, and even the local Boy Scouts. About 5 p.m., just as the searchers were about to give up hope for the night, one of the detectives noted that the ground on which they were standing was very soft. Both mother and daughter were found in shallow grave next to the lodge and less than 200 yards from where Charles Holliber's car had been stuck. Francis Holliber had been beaten and then shot once in the head and once in the heart. The baby girl had been buried alive. Oh, holy hell no. Unfortunately, this is facts on this part. Yeah, well, we don't want... Oh, no. Oh, as a mother, that guts me. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Now, the, and just like you, the local community was shocked and horrified by the cold, brutal character of the crime, especially when the investigation identified Charles Holliber as the prime suspect. Holliber later confessed to the investigator that he had planned the murder for three weeks and had not intended to report the disappearance of his wife, but he had to change his plan when the car got stuck in the mud. The case came to trial on January 16th of 1950. Holliber was dubbed the laughing killer by the media because of his apparent lack of remorse. After hearing four days of testimony, the jury returned a verdict of guilty and Holliber was sentenced to die in the electric chair. However, Holliber's attorney, D. Brooke Howard, filed an appeal alleging that the jury failed to consider the plea of insanity and that the court made errors in its instructions to the jury. The Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals eventually overturned the conviction and ordered a new trial. Four expert witnesses who had examined Charles identified that, in their opinion, he was insane. Members of his family added to the testimony that he had always been abnormal and his behavior evidenced insanity. He was committed to the Western State Mental Hospital at Marion, Virginia, where he was judged to be insane. Charles spent the next 18 years in mental hospitals. In 1968, he was released from the Southwestern State Hospital where he went to live with relatives and died in 2003 in West Virginia. Although the original legend of the Bunny Man supposed to take place in 1904, could the true crime of 1949 have been the basis of the insane Charles Holliber being the Bunny Man? Could the faulty memories of people as they tell and retell stories over multiple generations have caused the details to become murky, but nonetheless terrifying? Mm, no. I would say it's a totally different chat, a totally different story. Okay. But this does support that there was a guy who was insane 
and it was because of his wife of death and child. Right. So this does support that there could happen. Yeah. But you know, I hate to say it, but that happens a lot. What if the initial murders occurred and Hollister's story became the basis of the legend? Where does the support of a bunny man come from? Exactly. That part of this true story would occur over a few months and began with a pair of lovers sitting in their car. The credit for bringing these details about the bunny man legends to the spotlight goes to librarian and archivist Brian Connolly, who wanted to research and determine the facts from the fiction of the bunny man legend. Chapter 3 Hatchet in the Car. Hmm. On October 18, 1970, the Washington Post reported that, quote, man in bunny suit sought in Fairfax. In 1970, an Air Force cadet, Robert Bennett, was in the area to attend the weekend's Air Force-Navy football game and was visiting his uncle. The cadet went parking very late with his fiancée in an empty lot on Guinea Road in Fairfax. Now, regardless of what the two were doing, they were quickly interrupted by the shattering of the passenger side window. Even in the darkness, his appearance was quite startling. He was described by Bennett He was described by Bennett as a man dressed in a white suit with long bunny ears. The attacker yelled at the couple that they were on private property and that he had their vehicle's tag number. He threatened to have them arrested as trespassers. The bunny-dressed man then cocked his arm back and threw a wood-handled hatchet through the front car window. Satisfied that he had gotten his point across to the young couple, the rabbit skipped off into the night. (laughs) Bennett and his fiancée raced from the car to cross the street back to his uncle's house. They were fearful for their very lives that the maniac would return to continue his axe-wielding attacks. Luckily, neither of them were hurt. With his uncle, the pair went directly to the Clifton Police Department to report what just had happened. They didn't get a very good look at the person, but they did have one piece of physical evidence to give to the officers. The hatchet that had been thrown through the window. Could this man in a white rabbit suit have been the mental patient that killed and strung up bunnies from a bridge? Wow, could be. I think that one's even better. Again, this one is... What was the year on that one? This was happened in 1970. Yeah. 1904, 1970. He sounded like a crazy old man. Get off my lawn. Yeah. Or maybe he's a ghost. It does play into the legends of him appearing only on Halloween. Right. But what if cars were not the only target for the rage of the bunny man and his axe? Other witnesses experienced terrifying and odd encounters with the bunny man. Chapter 4. Hacking at Homes The bunny man made another appearance, according to the Washington Post, on October 30th, 1970 which ties into why he appears on Halloween. Right. This occurred about a block away from his original sighting. Private security guard Paul Phillips was making his rounds in a developing subdivision. 
While inspecting the streets for any signs of trouble, he spotted movement at the side of one of the darkened new homes. Phillips stepped out of his car with flashlight in hand to confront the odd sight. He was able to discover what had caused the movement he noticed earlier. It was the long-eared man on the porch of a new but unoccupied home. This version, however, was not dressed in a white bunny suit, but one of gray, black, and white in color. <laughs> he was holding a long-handled axe meant for chopping firewood. Okay. Phyllis recounted what happened next. Quote, I started talking to him, and that's when he started chopping. The bunny man did not respond to Phillips. Instead, he took several swings at a pole of the house, leaving deep gouges into the wood on the porch. He threatened at no one in particular. All you people trespass around here. If you don't get out of here, I'm going to bust you on the head. Wow. Realizing that this man was dangerous, Phillips made his way back to his vehicle to retrieve his service revolver. Once he was suitably armed, he returned to the house that the man was chopping at. The bunny had hopped off by then back into the woods. Little bunny boo boo. Sorry. Phillips was able to provide a better description of the man he saw. The Fairfax County Police now started looking for a male in his late teens or early 20s at about 5 foot 8 in height and about 60 pounds. This was all that the police department had to start their investigation with, but investigate they did. Chapter 5, The Investigation dun, dun, dun. Investigator W.L. Johnson was unable to turn up any conclusive information. He wrote, After an extensive investigation into this and all other cases of this nature, it is still unsubstantiated as to whether or not there really is a white rabbit. There was one break in the case when the staff at Kings Park West Development received a phone call from an unidentified man who referred to himself as the Axe Man. Hey, that's a Louisiana legend. Well, he kind of moved to Virginia as well in this case. The voice of the Axe Man on the other side of the telephone was very upset about the discarding of plant debris and tree stumps into his woods. He offered to make everything right if they would meet with him at night and talk everything over. The police set up surveillance on the location, but the bunny man did not show up. All other leads in the weeks following the two attacks dried up as there were many who claimed to have seen the bunny man, but there was no real details to track him down. After a few months, the police deemed the case inactive. So I thought that was the bunny man. What do you mean? The same bunny man as before? Yes. The, but it, it was is dressed differently. It is believed that the bunny man that attacked the car is the same one that attacked the house. I mean, you're kind of really beating the odds of two different people a block apart from each other. Dressed as bunnies attacking. About a month later. Oh, okay. It's kind of weird that he would change clothes then. Well, maybe he has a whole collection of rabbit suits. <laughs> Perb. It's kind of hard to imagine exactly what kind of thoughts a guy who Dressed walks around in a, in a bunny suit with an axe 
really yeah. has True as far story. as fashion. Yeah. <laughs> well, now that we've discussed the stories behind the Bunny Man, let's discuss some of the theories. Okay. Now, there are some historical inaccuracies. All these tales about the Bunny Man sound unlikely. This is mostly due to the historical inaccuracy surrounding much of the original lore. For one, there never was any documentation of a mental asylum for the criminally insane ever existing near Clifton. Oh. Well, and, dang. Now, it could be that paperwork was lost or there was a hidden in, in, asylum, but that seems very unlikely, even right. for 1904. Another fact. The Lorton prison did exist, but it didn't open until 1916. Oh. So over 10 years after this story supposedly took place. Well, yeah, then we go back to the whole... Confusing dates and getting everything messed up. Agreed. Now, here's the next problem. There's no Fairfax court record of Douglas Griffin ever existing. If he had been involved in a murder, escape, and further grisly murders then his name should have been all over the local papers, police records, and court documents. Right. Hence why it is possible that Douglas Griffin was the name that replaced Charles Holliber. Huh. That's just one theory. Right. In fact, the original story is the only resource that uses the name Douglas Griffin at all in any connection to the Bunnyman legend. It is part of a website that claims that proof and evidence about the incident does exist on microfish at the old Clifton Library. But that library never existed. What the hell? See, so there's a lot of holes (laughs) in this legend. You'd think if somebody was going to make something up, they'd do it a little bit better with... So, that just sounds weird. It does sound very weird. Sounds like a lot of cover-up. So you're going to go with the conspiracy theory? Oh, of course. Uh, that's what makes our podcast interesting. Or, or that's what makes people turn it off. <laughs> ah, so she goes again with that conspiracy theory. She's crazy. All right. Well, now let's talk about the next theory. If you take the historical inaccuracies out of it, there are some parts of the stories that do support theories. Okay. The bunny man could be related to an actual elderly man who is described as a curmudgeon, who owned the property that the couple was supposedly trespassing on. There are police records of the area that do exist of multiple complaints by an elderly man for what he considered trespassing on his land in the forest. Although the man had died a year or two earlier than the hatchet incident, maybe there was a younger family member that took up his cause. It is possible that he was mentally challenged and that his grandfather was looking after him before his death. Hmm. When he died, the younger man may have began his own crusade against trespassers. But being mentally incapable, he did it not armed with a telephone, but with an axe. And a bunny suit. And a bunny suit. (laughs) Could this be an attempt to keep people away from a cursed portion of the forest? Hmm. One that drove the man in the bunny suit insane? Wow. I really don't know what to say to that, but that was a cool story. Mm. Cool story, bro. Cool story. <laughs> I That no, was just a really good story. This part always makes me think of that meme of the old guy, you know, get off my lawn. 
Right. And then maybe when he died, you know, the crazy grandson didn't have someone to stop him, so now he's running loose in a bunny suit with an axe. <laughs> That's terrifying. <laughs> Pretty much everything about this story is terrifying. <laughs> You're right. I don't know if I want to rabbit anymore. <laughs> now let's talk about urban legends. Oh dear. In 1973, University of Maryland student Patricia Johnson had submitted a paper titled The Bunny Man. Oh, awesome. For a class that she was in called Introduction to Folklore. She had interviewed 33 students ages 15 to 18 directly about The Bunny Man. Now, her paper proves that the legend of the Bunny Man existed in some form even before the website in 1999. Johnson related that the tale met all of the qualifications of an urban belief tale by mixing historical truth with exaggerated storytelling. In fact, a rough tally of her finds revealed the following. There were 14 different geographical locations mentioned. So this story took place in 14 different places, according to the team she talked to. Okay. 18 versions involved the bunny man chasing or frightening people, usually children, with a hatchet or an axe. Okay. 14 stories tell of attacks on cars. Nine claim he attacked a couple parked in a car. Five accuse him of vandalism on homes or buildings. And only three actually mention a murder. So because there's so many variations of the story and based on the widespread geographical locations, Johnson concluded that the Bunny Man did not exist, or at least the true existence of who or what the Bunny Man is remains clouded beneath multiples of inaccurate stories and variations. That's awesome. So it's hard to tell out of all these 33 which was the true story of the Bunny Man. Because... Much like a game of telephone, the original message may have been exactly. true. The multiple people had passed through had changed it into the creation of its own. And this is what gives us the bunny man of today. Absolutely. That's, that's, a, that's a smart girl. <laughs> well, she's a college student. Yeah. Well, I was a college student too, but I don't... And you're very smart. Yeah, well, not that smart. Well, you did marry me. True. I mean, what? Wow. What are we talking about? That bunny man is just crazy. <laughs> Moving on. Now, it's been said that every urban legend is based on a kernel of truth. The one-lane tunnel on Colchester Road has become a popular spot. Police actually have to stake it out every Halloween night, chasing off trespassers searching for a scare. <laughs> Regardless of how much a person may believe in the legend of the bunny man, there's always a moment when everything is at its darkness and there is a moment of doubt that will pop up. Oh, of course. Perhaps the violence of Holliber's murder of his wife and children is connected to the mentally challenged man dressed in a bunny suit. Could the negative energy in that area spawn a spectral being that seeks out victims beneath the bunny man bridge? That's awesome. <laughs> so do you do you think that a bunny man I could love exist? This story. Um, I think it's a really good Halloween story. I and mean, it, it kind of takes me back to the whole Bloody Mary. It does. Know? It does fit along that same yeah, kind of a something vibe you want to go Bloody out Mary. and you want to try, but then you're kind of afraid to try it because what if it's true? What if something happens? And that's why the police are always there every Halloween because they know that there's going to be, you know, tons of teenagers and people like us. We're going to go out to that bridge just to test our luck. 
and test fate to see if the legend is true. True, but why are there police there? Because, I mean, really, who cares? Well, it's to keep kids from doing stupid things like drinking and hurting themselves or causing fights or basically getting into mischief. Okay. In fact, the town of Clifton has fully embraced the legend with t-shirts and a haunted Halloween attraction. Oh, we just go to that. Exactly. They even have lawn decorations in Clifton, usually include a bunny man as part of their um, tombstones and zombies. (laughs) So you'll find bunny man everywhere in Clifton as part of Halloween. That's cool. Now, of course, a Halloween movie and its two sequels has taken on the legend of the bunny man as a slasher maniac out to kill teenagers who dare to travel into his woods or come under his bridge. However, I do want to warn you. This version of the bunny man includes a clan of cannibals and the man in the bunny suit prominently utilizes a chainsaw rather than his traditional axe. And the story takes place in California rather than Virginia. So to be honest, the bunny man horror movies pretty much don't have anything to do with the bunny man that we're discussing today, which is sad. Is there a bunny man horror movie? Why have I not seen this? Because you're uncultured. There's actually three Bunny Man movies. Really? Yes. So they're just that stupid, I don't watch them? It might be. <laughs> Alright. Okay. So putting all this together, what are some of your final thoughts? Um, well, for one, I really liked the story. I thought it was very good. Um, you were actually kind of worried at first when you saw the picture I had on the title screen of the guy dressed in a bunny suit, didn't you? That was crazy. I thought, yeah, I wasn't expecting it to actually be somebody dressed in a bunny suit. I thought it was like a cryptid or something. No, this is actually either a ghost or an insane psychopath that wanders the woods around Clifton, Virginia. I'm going with insane psychopath. If so, is he the psychopath from 1904, (laughs) the psycho from 1950, the psycho from 1970? There's a lot of copycats. This is possible, too. For me, um, this is the combination of urban legends with facts that makes the legend of Bunny Man so interesting. Every area tells stories of the man with the hook that attacks people on Lover's Lane. And, of course, that was a lot of that, too. Well, and this actually happened. I mean, this was actually reported to the police. And it's just how much of a gray area between the legend and the facts in the newspaper is what makes it so believable and so terrifying. Right. Well, being sure to hop out from under this bridge, (laughs) I suppose this is a good time to make our way out of the mist and bring this episode to a close. Special thanks to David Facilian and Facilian Studios for the introduction music. For those who want to learn more about the Bunny Man, be sure to check out the Bunny Man, unmasked by Brian A. Conley. This is an essay that he wrote for the local library, and it has all kinds of great data in it. Also, there's Bunny Man Bridge, a novel by Ronald J. Van Weinsberg. Hmm, I think I need to read those. Great. And for the rest of you, We would like to ask you to please leave us a review on the podcast provider you are listening to this podcast on. This helps promote our show. We are also on social media and would love to hear your stories and opinions about the encounters 
with ghosts or bunny men of your own. I hope they don't have any actual bunny men stories. I kind of hope they do. Oh. I would like to. I'd well, like to hear their survived. versions. Well, if they're writing to us, I'm thinking they survived. Well, yeah. Well, other than I mean, my grandfather, you know, got killed by the bunny man. I don't want to hear that. Okay. <laughs> also, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Within the Mist Podcast. We are also on Instagram and Twitter. Plus, we have an email at withinthemistpodcast at gmail.com for any of you who would like to share. We love stories and hearing about your own personal experiences. We hope you enjoyed our stories about the Bunny Man and we'll come again for another episode. Please spread the word to your friends who would enjoy listening to our tales about cryptids, ghosts, and other things that go bump in the night. Until then... We hope you make your way out of the mist safely and perhaps a bit more curious. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. See you later.